And I was so angry. And it was like a voice said inside me, I'll use you, don't worry about it. And the different times that I have caused people's deaths or caused them discomfort through the um, through the influence, I believe it was the influence of that voice or whatever it was. It wasn't a voice in my head, it was a voice in here. And when I would do it afterwards, I would hear like a laughter in my chest. Welcome to Stat, I'm telling you all Medical true crime stories, and it gets bizarre Karen Wickham, yeah she used to work in ER And now she's sharing the knowledge, so let's get involved Ay, Funny and scary at the same time Medical mysteries, all facts, she ain't lying <laughs> So tune in to Stat, if you dare Cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere <laughs> Yeah Hello, hello, hello everybody out there in podcast land Welcome to Stat Shocking Traumas and Treatments, and I am your host, Karen Wickham, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Today is the final episode of the Elizabeth Wetlawfer miniseries. Following this episode will be another episode, and that episode <laughs> will be an interview with a friend of mine that was formerly friends with Elizabeth Wetlawfer. So you got to check that out. I'm going to put both of these out at the same time. So I think maybe you can listen to this first and then listen to that one. So yeah, it's, it's amazing. And I feel very fortunate that I was able to talk to her about this. Before I get started, I want to give some thank yous for some new iTunes reviews. Thank you to Felix76, S. Villarreal 62 Kazelia 80 and to that girl da who is also my newest patreon supporter so thank you so much everybody and thank you to my ongoing patreon supporters and if you want to stop by take a look at my patreon page maybe you'll find something that you like there and maybe you can give me a little bit of extra support okay so let's get started into the final chapter of the Elizabeth Wetlawfer miniseries. The last episode ended with Wetlawfer starting a new position at Meadow Park. Somehow she'd slipped through the cracks, and the College of Nurses didn't follow up on her transgressions and gross negligence and criminal behavior. That left Wetlawfer free to kill again. Here's a poem written by Wetlawfer that speaks of her happy work life. Working happy. Maybe it's the rye or the time of night, but my day was not so bad. Filled with work and satisfaction and old people. See, I work with old people, and I love their candidacy, their points, their wrinkles, their frailties, their refusing to eat anything but ice cream, even their smell. I love the finality, the resignation, the knowing this is their last home. Yes, sometimes I feel angry, but mostly at the staff, the people expected to meet the aging needs. I want to see everyone happy, everyone content, and when others who are paid to do so don't, well, I boil over. Come on, these people are paying to be here, to end their days in a beige diapered wasteland. Tonight, though, there is not even a simmer. Everyone is in bed, everyone is content, every tooth soaking, every diaper done up, every pad in place. So I am content. My happiness slides into place like the catheter I put in tonight 
and my soul vents itself like the healthy urine collecting in the bag. Very deep. As deep as the healthy urine collecting in the bag. Okay. The supervisor at Meadow Park told Wetlawfer she believed in second chances and offered her a one-year contract working evenings. The man that she was about to kill at Meadow Park wasn't given the same chance. Her eighth victim was Arpad Horvath, a 75-year-old man who stroked out. Let me tell you a little bit about Mr. Horvath because I like to put a name, a face to the victims. He grew up behind the Iron Curtain in the fall of 1956. A student protest that was brutally crushed in Budapest led to a full-scale revolution. Soviet tanks rolled into Hungary. Mr. Horvath, who was 18 and among 200,000 Hungarian refugees who escaped to the West. In an interview, his daughter-in-law, Audrey, said Mr. Horvath left on his own and made his way to Austria, bribing the border guards with cigarettes and chewing gum. He and his brother Frank eventually moved to Ontario because they had an uncle who lived in Leamington. Quote, He loved Canada, and if anyone said anything bad about Canada, he'd say, This is the place that gave me a home. End of quote. Wetlawfer's view of this man was very different than the one I just read to you. She said that, quote, Art was physically abusive to staff. He would pinch and hit. One evening, I decided that was enough. I felt angry, frustrated, vindictive, and energized, and I gave Art 80 units of short-acting insulin and 60 units of long-acting insulin at approximately 8 p.m. End of quote. During that night, he had a stroke and died four to five days later. It seemed that at this point, Wetlawfer couldn't control any of her urges, her need to kill, her addiction to drugs, or her growing fondness for hard alcohol. Here is a statement from Robin Laycock, a young nurse who worked at a Woodstock care home with Elizabeth Wetlawfer. She had a feeling that things weren't quite right with the older woman. A public inquiry looking into long-term care heard from Robin Laycock, who worked with her between 2010 and 2013. Before Laycock started working at the home, Wetlawfer had already killed two residents by injecting them with insulin. But no one suspected the nurse was intentionally harming patients. Laycock didn't get along with Wetlawfer. She was a young grad and Wetlawfer, an experienced nurse, would throw her weight around. In 2010, a month after being hired, Laycock was looking after a palliative patient. She testified that Wetlawfer suggested the patient needed some Dilaudid, a heavy-duty painkiller. But the patient appeared to be sleeping peacefully and not in pain, so Laycock disagreed. Laycock said at the Elgin County Courthouse in St. Thomas during her testimony, quote, Beth took it upon herself to administer the medication, end of quote. Sometime in early 2012, Laycock came upon Wetlawfer standing over another palliative patient, telling him or her it was okay to go. It's okay to pass on. Their body was tired. Their family would understand. Their journey was done. End of quote. Laycock testified. I was livid, Laycock said. I didn't think it was her place. It just kind of reminded me of the movies where the Grim Reaper was standing over a body waiting for the soul. End of quote. And Laycock nicknamed Wetlawfer the Angel of Death, ironically. And even more creepy is that at a Halloween party at Crescent Care, Wetlawfer dressed up as the Grim Reaper. 
Lakoff testified that she started looking over the death registry where Caressant Care recorded resident deaths to see if she could find a pattern to the deaths or if there were more deaths when Wetlaufer worked. I was wondering if there was an increase in patients that were passing on her shifts. I didn't have any particular proof. I kept going back and forth to the death registry, Laycock said. One particular month stood out to Laycock, but she didn't remember when that was. One of the lawyers for the group of victims' families suggested it was October and November 2011, when Wetlaufer killed three residents within 25 days. But Laycock said she couldn't be sure. She said it wasn't uncommon for residents to die in the evening or overnight, and she eventually dismissed her suspicions as silly. Quote, I didn't have any reason to be speculating. I didn't want to develop some kind of theory based on nothing. I didn't want to get anybody in trouble based on speculation. End of quote. Over her career at Crescent Care, Wetlaufer killed seven people, but it could be many more. Wetlaufer was hired through a temp agency to work at Telfer Place in 2016 after abruptly quitting her job at Meadow Park the very day a large amount of painkillers went missing. Nurse Diane Beauregard also testified at the inquiry. She worked at Telfer Place since 1999 and said the home had a very difficult time recruiting nurses because the work there was physically demanding and stressful. You never get breaks, she said. At the time Wetlaufer was placed there, one registered nurse was responsible for 45 patients in the long-term care part of Telfer Place facility. The nurse would work closely with the personal support worker on shift. Wetlaufer was placed at Telfer Place by Lifeguard Home Care, which had trouble retaining nurses. Quote, a lot of them wouldn't complete their orientation. They thought it was too much work. End of quote. It seemed like by the time you were done your morning medication pass, you're already into your new med pass then a smaller med pass in the afternoon, and then you'd still have to do your charting. And then on nights, it would be the physical work. Wetlaufer would have gotten eight hours of training as an agency nurse before she would work a night shift. After the eight hours of training, the next night she would be asked to come in. She would now have the keys to the medication room, the medication chart, the narcotic bin. She would be the sole person of authority within Telfer Place in charge of the whole building and the only other person working with her would be a PSW. Wetlaufer tried to kill Sandra Towler at Telfer Place. The resident's blood sugar was low for two days in a row as Beauregard came on for her night shift. Wetlaufer was working the evening shift. Both times Beauregard called 911. Paramedics treated Towler the first night and took her to the hospital the second night. The doctor said that they didn't have any concerns. And Beauregard said she didn't have any reason to suspect anyone was trying to harm the resident. Towler survived. Beauregard said she's been thinking back on the time working with Wetlaufer, wondering if there is any signs that she was harming residents. Quote, I look back now and I think, is there something that I missed? But there was nothing. End quote. Telfer Place no longer uses agency nurses since Wetlaufer's crimes came to light. Soon after Horvath's death, Wetlaufer quit her job at Meadow Park in order to get help for her addictions. Wetlaufer went to a rehab facility in Port Colborne, Ontario, where she stayed for about a month. Despite the deaths during Wetlaufer's shifts, there had been no investigations and no suspicions. In early 2015, about two months after getting out of rehab, Wetlaufer continued caring for the sick and elderly again, working part-time at nursing homes in towns surrounding Woodstock. 
As Wetlawfer would later tell police, she wasn't sure if she perceived her homicidal urges as messages from God or the devil. She referred to God a number of times in her confession, but she never alluded to the murders as being acts of mercy. As you heard from the clip at the beginning of this episode. The red surge seemed to be back and she seemed to have a strong need to talk about it. In the summer of 2016, Wetlawfer reached out to Sheila Andrews, the woman that she had had a fling with in Saskatchewan. She must have been very desperate because this was the woman who had rejected her. She contacted her through Facebook Messenger saying, quote, I am restless tonight, hyper about my job. Having a hard time getting one of these required skills right, the skill is changing the dressing on the IV line that goes directly to the heart. I violated that sterile field and put things all in the wrong place today. End of quote. Wetlawfer was likely referring to Bev Bertram, a 68-year-old woman she was caring for in Ingersoll, Ontario. Bertram was a very private woman that kept to herself. She lived with her partner in a public housing complex and was rarely seen by neighbors. Police would later accuse Wetlawfer of stealing insulin from another patient and administering a lethal dose via IV into Bertram's arm. I just want to play you a little piece of court testimony from Beverly Bertram about what she went through and how this affected her. She's a pretty incredible lady. I no longer know who I am because Elizabeth Wetlawfer consumes my life. I don't understand why she was bound, bent, and determined to kill me. I get, oh, she's in jail, don't worry about it, it's over. It's not over. We as the victims are not weak. We need care. And that doesn't mean we don't matter anymore. Elizabeth Wetlawfer didn't get respect. I'm not condoning anything she did. But if respect had been given to her as a person, what happened wouldn't have happened. She cried for help many times, and none was given. I just find it very um, annoying that my life is going to end in this manner. I'm 70 now, and I deserve better. What an incredible heart this woman has. And to think that if Wetlawfer had have given her any more of a dose, she may have taken this beautiful soul off the face of the earth and we'd have one less good person there. So Wetlawfer was losing control again and she was about to become undone. She was assigned a job to administer insulin to children in the community. Wetlawfer was working temp jobs with St. Elizabeth Healthcare, a nursing agency here in Canada, in mid-2016 when St. Elizabeth assigned a placement at a school program in Ingersoll that needed help treating children with diabetes. The care entailed that she would help manage and monitor the diabetic children's insulin pumps to make sure that they were getting the proper infusion of the life-saving medication. St. Elizabeth felt like Wetlawfer was the perfect fit, who better than a veteran nurse who had spent years administering insulin. Wetlawfer later admitted that she panicked and she couldn't trust herself not to kill again. 
She felt that even children under her care would be at risk. So she refused the assignment. And that right there, folks, tells you that she knew the difference between right and wrong. This woman may have had many, many, many mental health issues, mental health illnesses, but she knew the difference between right and wrong. She knew what she was doing. On August 29th, 2016, Wetlawford decided to walk away from nursing permanently. She had hit her bottom. She was a serial killer with no job and a raging addiction. She was desperate. One day, Wayne Messenger, a neighbor of Wetlawfer's, heard a knock on his door, and it was Elizabeth. He said, she looked very stressed out, shaky. Her face didn't look the same. She looked like she was sick. Messenger wasn't a fan of Wetlawfer. He had suspicions that she had once vandalized his bike, his son's stroller, and his door lock. The two had feuded over the years, but he had also noticed that she seemed to be working less and was willing to hear her out. This is what she said to him. I don't have any pills, and I'm suffering from morphine withdrawals. Wetlawfer was in acute withdrawal. She was very sick and knew that Messenger had a prescription for medicinal marijuana for his glaucoma and hoped that he might share some with her. He gave her a joint on the condition that she wouldn't come asking again, and she didn't. Wetlawfer had hit rock bottom. She didn't know who she was. Quote, Part of me started to believe I was the devil, end of quote, she told the investigators. She decided to reach out for psychiatric help. She packed up and left her apartment, and she must have realized that she was not likely to return because she asked a neighbor to take care of her dog, a Jack Russell named Nashville, a gift from a good friend. And as you will hear in the interview portion, that that gift from a good friend was from the woman that I interview. Messenger was one of the only people to see Wetlawfer leave the apartment building looking lost and disheveled, carrying a suitcase. This is what he said, quote, she looked defeated, totally defeated and at her wit's end, end of quote. Wetlawfer boarded a train in Woodstock headed for Toronto. Her intended destination, the emergency ward at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, also known as CAMH in Toronto. Up until this point, Wetlawfer's crimes had gone unnoticed and uninvestigated. There had been no police involvement, but that was about to change. Just because her murders had gone unnoticed and uninvestigated doesn't mean that they hadn't gone unconfessed. Elizabeth had told many people what she had done. She told her pastor about the murders that she committed, and as per Elizabeth, he prayed over her and told her not to do it again. Her pastor thought she might have been bluffing. One of Wetlawfer's ex-girlfriends didn't think any more of it when the nurse said she was having dreams about killing people. Wetlawfer tried to present herself as kind and caring and charming to the general public, including friends and colleagues. The real Wetlawfer was manipulative and calculating. Now I'm going to play you another poem that I think relates to her confessions to her friends and her pastor. Responsible. You weep and claim I am the cause of your brokenness, that the admission of my actions is killing you inside. I ache for you and had wondered if the deep dejection I see on you every day, if your throwing away of your life's ambition, so seemingly for no good reason, was the fault of my folly. My folly was in the confessing, of course. Burdening you was thoughtless, witless, selfish, unwise, 
immoral, all of it. I can't retract that true tale I told. I can't heal your feelings of despair, disillusionment, disgust. You demand, I think, of my actions' consequences and that I seek them out. Part of my punishment has been your pain and the loss of your friendship. The knowledge that I may need to sacrifice the life I have now to help you feel free to live your dream is a weight and a weight. The decision bubbles unmade, slowed down by the knowledge that my unthought swiftness in confessing is what now makes this decision necessary. It will not be made the way my huge mistake was. Wisdom and waiting will be the equal ingredients, along with hope for healing for us both. Once Wetlawfer was at CAMH, she was determined to be heard and believed. For the next three weeks, she told anyone who would listen that she had been killing innocent and helpless elderly people for over the last 10 years. Finally, she would be taken seriously. Wetlawfer's confession set off one of the largest police probes in Ontario history. Dr. Alan Kahn, her psychiatrist at CAMH, suggested she write everything down on paper and warned her that anything she revealed would be turned over to police. She eventually provided him with a four-page handwritten confession outlining whom she had killed or harmed and when. She said that she couldn't recall the last names of all her victims. She wrote out the details clear and concisely as she would have documenting nurses' notes during a shift at work. There was no apparent sense of deep remorse. The only emotion appeared to be relief. While undergoing treatment, she reached out to several other people outside the medical and police communities. The most explicit revelations were kept for her old friend, Glenn Hart, to whom she sent a series of Facebook messages. Hart didn't know yet the grave secrets that she had kept. Quote, she had something she really wanted to tell me, and then she disclosed that, well, somebody had died because of something I did at work. I assumed it to be accidental and responded accordingly, he recalled. And then she disclosed that it wasn't accidental and that it wasn't just one. Hart wasn't sure what to make of it. He wondered if these were bizarre ramblings or a confession of sadistic crimes. I asked, why did you do this? What brought this on? And she said, Oh, I had some anger issues that I had to deal with, uh, some really major anger issues. She said, I think I was acting out my anger issues on these people. Hart told Wetlawfer she had to go to the police, unaware that staff at CAMH had already done just that. Hart offered his friend some words of encouragement. It'll be hard on you, he wrote. Be strong, tell the truth. Thank you, I will, she said. When police came to CAMH, the nurse agreed to go with them to the police station and give a recorded statement. They notified police back in Woodstock. Police there and in London would take part in a massive investigation led by homicide investigators from Ontario Provincial Police. Wetlawfer also wanted to reveal her crimes to the College of Nurses and surrender her nurse's license. On October 5, 2016, Wetlawfer was discharged from CAMH, but there was still little more than a confession for police to work with. Quietly, investigators were pouring through death notices and medical records. Soon, they pieced together full names of the alleged victims. Nursing logs show that Wetlawfer was with the victims at or near the time that they were poisoned. The net was closing in, and Wetlawfer knew it. She agreed to a court order preventing her from possessing insulin or going anywhere near long-term care homes. Back at her apartment complex, police searched her home, carting away boxes of evidence, including her computer. 
Wetlofter's biggest concern appeared to be for her belongings. She even asked the detective if her place would be a mess after they left. To most of her closest friends, Wetlofter still never let on anything drastic was going on, let alone that she was a murderer. Nancy Gilbert and another woman in the complex agreed to go with Wetlofter uh, to dinner at a local steakhouse. All the friends knew that she was supposed to be staying with her parents and that she was under some sort of restrictions, but Wetlofter downplayed it. Gilbert said that they talked and laughed and joked. And Gilbert said, quote, And she just brought up, has a policeman been around my door asking anybody for questions? And I said, well, I don't know. And the other lady said, I think they were around. And then she said to us, well, I like the police in uniform and they don't scare me at all. Gilbert said, that was odd. Three days later, Wetlofer was arrested and charged with eight counts of first degree murder. Police would later add four counts of attempted murder and two counts of aggravated assault. The judge in the case sentenced her to life in prison. Wetlofer gave a very weak, short, prepared statement. She didn't even turn around and face the victim's families or look them in the eye. Quote, I have caused horrendous pain. Sorry is too much. A small word. I hope that families can find some peace and healing. End of quote. Despite everything Wetlofer has revealed, her mother... Hazel Parker has tried to minimize her daughter's culpability, saying, for example, that, quote, Wetlofer didn't have to confess and could have just taken her secrets to the grave. And that what's all been lost in this is that Elizabeth tried to do the right thing. End of quote. So what's happening now? Where is Elizabeth Wetlofer now? Well, after serving only a short period of time in a maximum security prison, she was transferred to the Institute Philippe Pinel de Montreal, a hospital with a specific medical wing for female federal inmates. I believe that Wetlofer has been manipulating the prison system to get an easier place to serve her time. That's why she wanted to go to prison, because she knew her life would be so much better there. This specific hospital provides a wide range of personal development programs such as music, art, theater, sports and leisure, horticulture with a community garden. It also has an education center that offers internet access that is not in place of traditional prisons. Do you guys want to know how I feel about that? (laughs) Yeah, uh, I'm not happy about this because during this all, when she confessed, She said that she was relieved and that she could have a better life in prison than outside of it. And not only was she kind of, it sounded like looking forward to a more comfy life in prison, that while in there, she convinces them, manipulates them, that she is incredibly mentally ill, even though it's proven throughout this whole damn case that she knew what she was doing. And now she's in what I think is a cushy place that's going to, you know, stroke her and tell her that she's really not that bad of a person and allow her to live as comfortable existence as possible. Do I sound cynical here? Damn right I do. Because just that's how I see it. And Canada, come on. We cannot allow this to happen. People that are guilty and of sound mind should serve the hardest prison sentence 
that they can, that's available for the rest of their life. And that is not it. So aside from that ridiculousness, what has been the aftermath? Well, there was a public inquiry into the safety and security of residents in the long-term care home systems. And this started in August 1st, 2017, after Wetlawfer was sentenced to eight concurrent life sentences. The College of Nurses' response was that they charged Wetlawfer with professional misconduct. And even though she had already been found guilty in a criminal court uh, and voluntarily surrendered her, poli- her nursing license, a formal hearing was required by the College of Nurses to officially bar her from the profession. Wetlawfer declined to participate in the hearings and was found guilty based on court documents from her criminal trial as well as her previous confession. Her conduct was deemed disgraceful and dishonorable by the disciplinary panel and her nursing registration was formally revoked indefinitely, barring her from ever practicing nursing in Ontario again. The chair of the five-person disciplinary panel that heard Wetlawfer's case said it was the most egregious and disgraceful conduct this panel has ever considered. And what about the fallout for the family? Well, Mr. Arpad Horvath's daughter has filed a $12.5 million civil suit against two southwestern Ontario long-term care facilities that employed the serial killing nurse and other healthcare organizations. Court documents filed against Metal Park, Crescent Care, the Ontario Nurses Association, and others allege that healthcare providers were negligent in some of the practices and failed to provide adequate care and protection for some long-term care patients, like Horvath's father. As can only be expected, all family members and friends of their loved ones who were murdered are trying to pick up the pieces, trying to wrap their minds about what happened. We're just going to end... First, with a quote from Arpad Horvath's son after the hearing, after the trial. And then I want to give honor to the people that passed. I don't have my father anymore. I miss him. I really, I really miss him a lot. Every goddamn day. It's like the air I breathe, you know, he was everywhere. He'd be here today if it wasn't for the goddamn incompetence of people. Just incompetence, gross incompetence, worrying about what people are going to say about them, worried about getting in trouble, worried about how much it costs. Human life doesn't have a cost, Commissioner. Maurice Moe Granat, Gladys Millard, 87. Helen Matheson. Mary Zarinsky. Helen Young. Maureen Pickering. And the following are the victims who survived Wetlawfer's murderous attempt. Mike Priddle, Wayne Hedges, Sandra Towler, and Beverly Bertram, who you heard that incredible testimony from. I want to give special thanks to Tanya, who read both of those poems for this episode. And check out the interview that I told you about that should be posted right around the same time that I post this episode. You don't want to miss that. Thank you all for all your amazing support and encouragement in 2018. What a year, but I'm really looking forward to 2019 and what it has to bring. On that note, just want to say, take care of each other. Take care of yourself, love each other, 
And most importantly, love yourself. Peace. One love. True crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in, learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable, yeah. Subscribe, make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stat.